Lord Jesus, that is our prayer this morning, that you would be all, that you would receive the glory, that you would be the highest object of our love and our trust and our affection and our loyalty. Lord Jesus, you are worthy, worthy of our worship, worthy of our faith, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our love because of who you are, the eternal Son of God, but also because of what you've done. You humbled yourself to take on flesh and you laid down your life to deal with our sin and to rescue us from death and guilt and shame and to bless us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You made us your children. You made us clean. You gave us life. You gave us a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission. And you gave us a restored relationship with the Father. So because of that, Lord Jesus, we pray that today in this place and in our hearts, you would be all, that we would be humble before you, and not the humility of shame, not the humility of, of, of fearful guilt, but the humility of joy that recognizes all that we have been given in Christ. We pray for your help now to comprehend the glory of who you are and what you've done, and we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your High and lifted up name. Amen. Amen. You can open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. I want to ask you a question as we begin. Have you ever wondered why God gave us four Gospels? Maybe you wondered this when you're doing your read through the Bible plan and you thought, man, I could have got done like two months sooner if I only had to read one instead of four Gospels. Maybe you've wondered, why didn't God just have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John like get together in a room, compare their notes, and just give us like one really good one, you know, that, that includes everything we need to know? Why didn't they collaborate and sort of create like a super gospel? We just had one gospel at the beginning of the New Testament. Well, in God's perfect wisdom, God knew that there's a better way. There's a better way than just giving us one gospel. He gave us four separate testimonies from four separate authors. And I think there's at least three reasons why this is better. I'll just share those with you briefly by way of introduction. I think one of the reasons we have four gospels is because each gospel author gives us unique contributions. Unique contributions. Yes, all of these authors are telling the same story. They're talking about the same Jesus, the same set of events. But each author brings a unique perspective because each author is a different person. Uh, and also each author is writing to a unique audience and therefore offers a unique emphasis. For example, Matthew is writing to Jews. So he emphasizes that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. Mark, on the other hand, is writing to Roman believers, emphasizing that Jesus, not Caesar, is the Son of God, and that Jesus has all power and authority. Luke writes to a Gentile man named Theophilus, and he emphasizes, likely to this Greek man, the unique humanity of Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect man who brings salvation to all kinds of people, not just to the Jews. John emphasizes the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the one who is the Word incarnate. And altogether, these four gospel testimonies 
They really give us a more comprehensive understanding of Christ. They take the, the, the diamond jewel that is the gospel story, and each one of those authors turns it so that the light reflects in a different way to show us uh, the beauty and the glory of every angle of who Christ is and what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. So the Lord, in his perfect wisdom, gave us four gospels so that we could hear each one of these unique messages and gain their unique contributions. But a second reason I think God gave us four gospels is not just because of their unique contributions, but because of the way it gives confirmation, confirmation of what took place. Yes, all the gospels have their unique contributions, but there's also a great value in the overlap, the things that they all say that are the same. It's interesting in, in Jewish law in the Old Testament, it was required that there be at least two witnesses in a court of law for a legal decision to be made. God gave us four. He doubled the minimum requirement so that we could have confidence that what these men testify to is true. Each one of these gospels authenticates the story of Jesus. They all say the same things about him, and their testimonies harmonize. There's a third reason. Not only do they give unique contributions, and they sort of confirm each other in terms of attesting to the same truths, but there's also value in the repetition. There's value in the repetition because it communicates something to us. It's really interesting. I was thinking this week, we don't have four accounts of the beginning. There's only one book of Genesis. We don't have four accounts of the end. There's only one book of Revelation. We don't have four accounts of the life of Abraham or the life of Joseph or the life of David or the life of Daniel or even the ministry of Paul. Those things are told to us basically one time. But we're given four accounts of the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus. That should say something to us. And not that those other stories are unimportant. Not that they are any less true or less necessary than the testimony about Jesus Christ. But the four accounts to the life and ministry and message of Jesus, it makes sense when we understand that Jesus is the climactic moment in the scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament scriptures leads us to this moment, to the coming of Christ, to what he did, to what he accomplished. And everything in the rest of the New Testament flows from what Jesus did, who he is and what he accomplished. All the apostles are simply preaching and then applying the truth about Jesus Christ. So the way that um, the gospel authors actually overlap and, and end up repeating each other, that says something. It says something about what is most essential and most important to our faith. It's about Jesus Christ. This whole book this whole Bible that we've been given is intended to focus on him. And those are just a few reasons why I'm very excited to embark on this journey through the Gospel of Luke in our time together on Sunday mornings. I don't know exactly how long it will take, so I won't make any promises. But I'm excited about discovering the unique contributions that Luke makes. Luke has some things to say. Luke has some things to emphasize that are a little bit different than the other Gospel authors. But I'm also excited about the way that Luke underscores those precious central truths that are contained in the other Gospels, truths that are absolutely essential for those who believe God's promise of salvation through his son, Jesus. 
So what is it that makes Luke so unique? Before we jump in, we'll just make a few comments here. Luke um, was written by a Gentile. The author Luke appears to be the only Gentile to author a book of the Bible. That's interesting. Everybody else who authors a book of the Bible was connected to Israel, but Luke was a Gentile. And he addresses this book to a Gentile. It's addressed to a man named Theophilus, who we see in verse 3 of Luke chapter 1. It's the only gospel that's addressed to an individual. Matthew writes to the Jews at large. Mark is writing to the believers in Rome. John writes to the early church as a collective. But Luke writes to Theophilus. That makes his gospel unique. Luke was a faithful companion of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. He was called in Colossians chapter 4, the beloved physician. So it's very likely that Paul, who was often injured and sick and battered and bruised and bleeding from all the persecution he suffered, he sort of had a traveling doctor with him who likely would have ministered to his needs. And at the end of Paul's life, when, when his other partners in ministry were scattered and stationed elsewhere, and while some of his, his co-laborers had actually abandoned him, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that only Luke is with me. Luke was a faithful co-laborer with the Apostle Paul who stayed with him all the way to the end. And as he writes this gospel, it's interesting that about 50% of the material in Luke is only found in Luke. So when we think about unique contributions, Luke's gospel contains stories and events and parables that aren't found in any of the other gospels. For instance, the birth narratives, the the details surrounding Jesus' birth. We often read Luke 2 around Christmas because he's the gospel author who gives us the most information about this. Um, He includes many parables that are unique, including parables like the prodigal son, parables like the good Samaritan, teaching that we wouldn't have preserved for us today if Luke did not record them. Luke also includes the the story of Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection from the dead. He gives us several different unique things. Um, So I'm excited to preach through this gospel because of that. Also, Luke's gospel is the only one that has a sequel. Luke didn't just write the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts, which is also addressed to, to Theophilus. So he has this story about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and then he has a story about the teaching and the message of Jesus as it spreads and the history of Jesus' followers as they took the truth of Jesus and, and spread it throughout the known world. It's interesting, if you add up Luke and Acts together, those two books are actually longer than all of Paul's letters put together, which means that Luke is the most prolific author in the New Testament. It's just fascinating. But Luke's unique focus, theologically, his unique theological focus is on Jesus as the Son of Man. Luke, as the physician, focuses on the humanity of Christ and points out that this perfect man, the Son of Man, is the one who brings salvation. And he brings salvation for all kinds of people. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus in the birth narratives. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus as he highlights how Jesus prays. Luke talks about the prayer life of Jesus more than any other author. He highlights how how Jesus depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit more than the other gospel authors. So he, he pulls out that humanity. But he also emphasizes this idea of salvation, salvation for all people. All the gospel authors teach that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. That's not unique to Luke. 
But Luke uses the words save and salvation more than any of them. And he makes a special point to show that this salvation, it extends to the poor. It it extends to Gentiles. It extends to sinners. It extends to the people that seemed to be the least likely to belong to the kingdom of God. I think that's why he includes the parable about the prodigal son. This man who goes far away and wastes his life but is brought back in. He tells the story about uh, the, the, the Samaritan, uh, the man who was not, uh, not a member of is, the Israel community, he was a Gentile, but he actually expresses love for neighbor in a way that fulfills God's law by ministering to that man on the road to Jericho. Luke is eager to show that the salvation that Jesus brings extends to all kinds of people from every level of society, every walk of life, every ethnicity, every background. Luke declares that the good news of salvation through Jesus is for everyone. That's the theological focus of his gospel, that the Son of Man, this perfect man who is the Son of God, brings salvation for all who believe. I'm going to read our text this morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This will be what we focus on today. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Luke does here in the prologue to his gospel is basically identify the recipient. He's writing to this man, Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, he calls him. And he sort of explains his process. He says, I've been gathering data, I've been doing research, I've been talking to people, and I've tried to compile this orderly account for you. And he not only talks about his process, he announces his purpose. Verse 4, his purpose is that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. He wanted Theophilus to have assurance that his faith was grounded in the truth, that it was trustworthy. The central idea for the the message this morning is very simply this, that the good news of salvation through Jesus for everyone is trustworthy. The good news of salvation through Jesus for everyone is trustworthy. That's the point. I want to share with you this morning three reasons why we can have great confidence in the message about Jesus Christ. Number one, the good news of salvation in Jesus is historically valid. It's historically valid. Luke wants Theophilus to trust what he's been taught and to trust what he reads because he is fully convinced that it is historically valid. The gospel is trustworthy because these things happened. In addition to being a physician, Luke applied himself diligently as a researcher. Luke is a historian, and he makes clear to Theophilus that he has carefully tracked down each and every detail in his gospel, and he's done so from original sources. And so as Luke is writing to Theophilus, he acknowledges at the front, he says, I'm not the first person to say these things. I'm actually standing on the shoulders of others. He points out in verse 1 that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In Luke's context, 
He had access to resources. There were, there were both oral traditions where people had passed down the stories of what Jesus had done, the teaching that Jesus had done, the miracles that Jesus had performed. People were talking about it. People were memorizing these things and passing them on, recounting them around dinner tables and in synagogues and in the early church. So Luke knows that I'm not the first person to tell this story. There's all this oral tradition that's floating around out there, but there were also written accounts. It's very likely that Mark and Matthew had both already written their gospels. So Luke likely would have had access both to the authors of those gospels and to their written record. He would have been able to examine their writings and even talk to them and sort of you know, collaborate together as he compiled his gospel. As Luke did that, he would have been familiar with Mark's contribution and likely Matthew's contribution and also the oral traditions that went around. But Luke felt like an additional record would be helpful. Perhaps Luke wanted to draw out his unique emphasis. Perhaps he recognized the need to write down and record bits and pieces that the others hadn't included in their records. Perhaps Luke knew that some of these people who were eyewitnesses, they wouldn't be alive forever. And so it was important to get their testimonies written down on paper, parchment, whatever he was using, so that they could be shared with others who would come after. Luke also tells Theophilus and us that this isn't some recent interest that Luke has developed. Um, he has been, uh, he's no latecomer to the game. He's been following all these things, he says, closely from the beginning. He says that in verse 3. He says, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Luke has a personal interest. I think that Luke searched these things out first and foremost for himself. He wanted to know more. He wanted to know as much as he could about Jesus and about the teaching of Jesus, about the miracles Jesus had performed. He wanted to know everything he could about the resurrection of Jesus. And so he's been following this. He's been, he's been interested in this for a very long time. Now he aims to share that knowledge, to share the things that he has discovered, to share the information he has collected. He wants to share it with Theophilus and with a wider audience beyond as he knows that, that this gospel will be trustworthy and useful for many in ages to come. So Luke's an excellent historian, and his aim is to compile this orderly account. Now, what does it mean that Luke is compiling an orderly account? Well, I think he's pointing out that what he's done here, he's done very, very carefully. And he's aimed in every, with every effort to be completely accurate. It's an orderly account. It's organized. It's put together intentionally. This is not some first draft where he just threw a bunch of things together. Generally, I think Luke is somewhat chronological, but when he says orderly account, that doesn't mean that everything is strictly chronological. Luke is organizing things. It's orderly, but sometimes he will group events somewhat thematically. For example, he includes the story of the arrest of John the Baptist at the beginning of his gospel, because that's when he talks about the, the birth and the early ministry of John the Baptist. So he puts all the John the Baptist stuff together rather than bringing up John's arrest later on during Jesus' ministry. So he organizes things not so much chronologically, although it is generally in order, but he arranges things thematically because Luke is not just recounting facts. 
Remember, part of his aim as a gospel author is he's selecting relevant facts so that he could communicate them in a way that is powerful and compelling and persuasive so that we understand not just what happened, but what it means and why it happened. And one of the reasons Luke is able to do this so well is Luke has access to eyewitnesses. He says in verse 2 that there are many who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And they are the ones who have delivered this truth to us. Luke had access to apostles. He was not one of the original 12. Luke is not an apostle of Jesus, and it indicates here that he was likely not an eyewitness of many of the things that happened. But he spent time with the people who were. He was able to talk to them. I'm betting that not only the apostles were some of his sources, but others as well. Disciples of Jesus who followed him, traveled with him, and especially the women that were attached to Jesus. It's likely that he sat down with Mary herself, the mother of Jesus. Later on, when he's telling the story of of the, the virgin birth, and he says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Well, how would he know that unless he talked to Mary? It seems like Luke was doing his due diligence, talking to anyone and everyone that he could who were eyewitnesses of these things. It's likely that he could have interviewed these apostles and people that were close to Jesus during Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea. For two years, the apostle was locked in prison, awaiting trial. And so in that region, um, Luke would have been not that far away from Galilee, not that far away from Jerusalem. It's likely that some of those people would have come to visit Paul. And so Luke had access to all of these eyewitnesses. And it's important that we understand these are eyewitnesses of things that took place. The people Luke talked to, they saw the miracles. They heard the teaching. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw his body literally laid in the tomb. They also saw the tomb empty. They also saw the resurrected Jesus. They also saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They saw everything. And if anything that Luke says here was false, Theophilus or any other readers could have easily discovered that. They could have just gone and talked to the people who were there. But Luke says, everything that I've gathered together is trustworthy. I've put it together in an orderly manner. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. Not only did these eyewitnesses personally experience the life and ministry of Jesus, it changed their life. They lived by what they heard. These eyewitnesses had bought in. They were more than just passive bystanders who possessed um, some, some historical information. Look at how he describes these eyewitnesses in verse 2. He says, Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They're ministers of the word. These eyewitnesses are not the unbelieving Jews who rejected Christ. They were not the callous Roman soldiers who put him to death. These eyewitnesses were those who embraced Jesus and his claims. It's interesting, the message here does not belong to them. It's not their message. They are ministers of the word, or or as some translations render it, servants of the word. I love how he describes that. This is not their truth. They belong to the truth. They are servants of the truth. They're servants of the word whose lives were now dedicated to proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, if the things that he did didn't really take place, 
Why would these people dedicate their lives to this message? Why would they die for the historical claim of the resurrection of Christ? Something had happened. Those who saw it had been changed by it, and they're now passing on what they saw. This can only be explained by the fact that the stories are true. What these eyewitnesses saw and experienced compelled them to believe, compelled them to follow Jesus, compelled them to tell anyone and everyone who would listen that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for sin. The story of Jesus is a historical reality. The gospel message can be trusted because it is historically valid. It transformed the lives of these witnesses and catapulted them into a life of mission. That speaks to the reality of these events as historically true. And all of this is meant to assure Theophilus that these things that he's telling Theophilus about, they really happened. They really happened. Such confidence in the historicity of Jesus' life and ministry is necessary for faith. We have to believe that it's true. That it's true. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, there's a man named Sir William Ramsey. He was a well-known archaeologist, a well-known historian, and he was highly skeptical of the Scripture, and especially of Luke. He read the, the, the book of Acts, the sequel to Luke's Gospel. And there's all of this historical data about specific rulers and their names and cities and how long it took to travel and all of these different things. He was highly skeptical. In fact, he read the book of Acts and said, the book of Acts is a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of primitive Christianity. He said, a lot of this is made up. It's wishful thinking. And this man, Sir William Ramsey, actually traveled to the Middle East, and he did so to embark on a project. He aimed to prove that the accounts of Scripture, especially Luke with his historical claims, that they were false. But what this man found gave him a severe case of academic whiplash, okay? His mind was completely changed. Having done the research for himself, archaeologically, historically, in the region, having seen all of that, he wrote this, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the harshest treatment. This archaeologist, this historian, who was so skeptical of the claims of Scripture, he went from laughing at the claims of the Bible to writing a book called The Beloved Physician, where he basically talks about how accurate all of Luke's work is. It's an amazing thing. Here's the bottom line. Luke is claiming right up front in the prologue to his gospel that this gospel is not a record of philosophical ideas. It is not simply a collection of moral platitudes. This is not just his own personal thoughts, and it is not some myth. Luke claims to be writing down real concrete events that took place at a real point in time that involved real people. And he says it's true. And I want you, Theophilus, and I want you, modern reader, to be confident in the truthfulness of this record. It's a sad tragedy today that as modern people, we have so much arrogance and pride as to think that we're that much smarter than those who lived in the first century, that much smarter than all the people who came before us, that we would not take seriously their claims and their historical ideas. 
It is a sad testament to our anti-supernatural bias that we would read a story like the feeding of the 5,000 and say, well, it couldn't possibly have actually happened. That we would read a story like the resurrection of Jesus and say, well, obviously this is sort of symbolic for you know, the, the story about Jesus and the spirit of his people being overcomers. That's arrogance and it's unbelief. The scriptures do not claim to be myth. They do not claim to be inspirational fiction. They claim to be historical reality. Real concrete events that took place. And listen, it needs to be true. We must believe it. Mythology does not offer you real forgiveness of sins. Mythology does not offer you a transformed life. Fiction does not call for your absolute allegiance and obedience. Fiction doesn't move you to take up your cross and follow Jesus. A religious conspiracy is not something you will stand firm on all the way to the point of death. But the story of Jesus does offer you forgiveness. The story of Jesus does change you. The story of Jesus does demand your allegiance. And the story of Jesus does give you hope of eternal life. And it is worth living for. And it is worth dying for. Because it actually happened. It actually happened. The good news of salvation in Jesus is historically valid. Luke says, I want you to trust it. It is trustworthy. Because it's true. Second point, not only is the good news of salvation in Jesus historically valid, but secondly, it is also sovereignly accomplished. Sovereignly accomplished. I want you to look at this little phrase. It's in verse 1, at the very end of verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Look at that phrase, the things that have been accomplished among us. I know this is going to stress some of you out, but I'm going to take you back to like middle school English class. Do you guys remember the, the difference between an active verb and a passive verb? An active verb is something where, where the subject is the one doing the action. So if I throw the ball, I am the subject, throw is the verb, I'm the one doing the throwing. A passive verb is the opposite. When it says, I got hit by the ball, you know, I, I was struck by the ball, I am the subject, but there's something happening to me. I'm not the one doing the action. Well, this is a passive verb, the things that have been accomplished among us. So it raises the question, who is doing the accomplishing? Who is at work making all of this happen? Well, the story of Jesus is nothing less than the outworking of God's sovereign plan for salvation. The Gospel of Luke is sovereignly accomplished history. It's not just a historical record about some stuff that happened. It's an account of what God has done. God was accomplishing something through His Son, Jesus Christ. He was accomplishing something. That indicates two things. Number one, it indicates purpose. It indicates purpose. The historical record of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus there is purpose behind all of it. Something being accomplished means there's a plan. There's a plan that's being brought to fruition. In the opening chapters of Luke, we meet an old man named Simeon, an old woman named Anna. Both of them, we find them waiting in the temple for the Messiah. Why were they doing that? 
Because they knew the promises of the Old Testament. They knew that God's plan and God's purpose was to bring salvation through this anointed one who was to come. That he would bring salvation to Israel. There's a plan in motion. We hear Zechariah and Mary rejoicing, worshiping, when they hear the announcement of John's birth and Jesus' birth because they recognize this is the fulfillment of promise. And we'll see this in, in the next few weeks. When Mary and Zechariah offer these hymns of praise, they're celebrating the fact that God is keeping his promises, that God is fulfilling his covenant purposes. In chapter 24, I, I love this story, at the end of the gospel, after Jesus rises from the dead, he's walking with two disciples on the road, and they don't know it's Jesus. They're, they're kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asks them why they're so sad. And they say, don't you know what's just happened? Are you the only one in Judea who doesn't know? And they tell him about Jesus' death. And they said, we thought that maybe he would be the one who would come to rescue Israel. And Jesus said, why are you so foolish and slow to believe? And he opened their eyes. And it says that Jesus showed them all the things concerning himself in the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus skipped a rock across the Old Testament and touched on all the different places that pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah to help these two men understand that he was that Messiah. When Luke says he's recorded this event, or recorded this record of this narrative of the things that have been accomplished, he's saying this is God's sovereignly ordained plan, and it exposes, it reveals the purpose of God. Luke's gospel is historical, but it's not just about history in general. It is about redemptive history. In the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is a perfect, glorious, gracious, divine plan that is unfolding. God is at work. God's doing something. He's at work rescuing his people from sin and death. He is at work bringing us salvation through the perfect man, his divine son, Jesus Christ. He's at work extending his love to those who suffer, extending light to those who are in darkness, extending freedom to those who are in bondage. That's what is being accomplished, just as God had promised. This is not some plan B. This is not Jesus kind of, you know, trying to cope with a broken world by fixing some things. This is what God had planned from the beginning. And it's exactly what God knew would be the very best way to bring glory to his name and salvation to people that he loved. So this indicates God's purpose, but it also indicates God's power. When he says these things have been accomplished among us, yeah, there's a plan at place, there's intentionality, but there's also power. Something happened. And the things that have been accomplished can only be explained in supernatural terms. We're going to encounter this power on every page of Luke's gospel. A virgin birth, angels singing in the sky. How do you explain that? Jesus triumphing over Satan's temptation in the wilderness. That's power. Healing the sick, the lame, the blind. Feeding thousands, casting out demons, rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. This is undeniably the power of God. So when Luke says this narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, he's talking about God's divine purpose and God's divine power. When we speak of God's sovereign plan of salvation, it is this fusion of purpose and power that brings God's grace to us. 
It brings God's grace to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation is trustworthy because it's historically valid, but we can also trust it because it has been sovereignly accomplished. This is God's perfect plan, and it is energized by God's infinite power. That's why you can trust it. That's why it's worth believing. That's why it's worth giving your life to. He wants Theophilus and us to know that. So the good news of salvation is historically valid. It's also been sovereignly accomplished. But third, the good news of salvation in Jesus is universally available. It's universally available. As we mentioned earlier, Luke writes to an individual named Theophilus. This is a Greek name. It means a lover of God or loved by God, something along those lines. And because Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, it seems that he's not only a Gentile with a Greek name, but he was probably also a high-ranking man who, who filled some sort of official position in, in, in society, whether it was governmental position or something like that. Because this is a title, most excellent Theophilus. What this means is that Theophilus was likely not a Jew. He's an outsider. He was a a latecomer to the kingdom of God, you could say, historically speaking. And Luke says that this man, Theophilus, has already heard about Jesus. Um, Verse 4 says that he's been taught about these things, but he needs certainty. He needs to be strengthened in his faith. Perhaps Theophilus wondered if this story about a Jewish man who was supposedly the son of Yahweh, the Jewish God, who fulfilled all the promises of the Jewish scriptures for the people of Israel, he might have wondered, is all of that really for me? Do I belong here? And Luke's answer is an undeniable yes. The answer, Theophilus, is yes. The gospel is for people from every nation. Luke writes as a Gentile. He says, Theophilus, this is the truth and the message I've given my life to. It is for you too. Luke and Theophilus here are both Gentiles. Luke records the story of the Good Samaritan, where the hero in the story Jesus tells is not Jewish. This would have shocked the Jewish audience, but it would have encouraged a Gentile like Theophilus. We also see this in the early chapters of Luke. It's one of those parts you might skip through because you might not recognize the importance of it. But in Luke chapter 3, he gives us a genealogy of Jesus. And he traces the ancestry of Jesus. If you go to verse 38, he traces the ancestry of Jesus not just back to David, which would have marked Jesus as the rightful king, not just back to Abraham, which would have marked him as belonging to Israel. He traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back He calls him the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He takes the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to the first man, linking him with the father of humanity itself. This links Jesus, the son of man, with all of mankind. So he is Israel's Messiah, yes, but he is also a savior for the human race. He is a savior for all who believe. This universal scope of the gospel continues throughout Luke's gospel and into the book of Acts where we see that the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria to the ends of the earth, the outer edges of the Roman Empire. The gospel is for people of every nation, every ethnicity, every race. 
The gospel, Luke will show us, is also for people of every class and status. Luke's gospel, more so than any of the others, includes and names many of the women who follow Jesus. This would have been somewhat shocking in that day because there were points in time where a woman's testimony in a court of law was not admissible. Luke doesn't care and neither does Jesus. He sees that as necessary and valid. He names and includes these women showing that even if they had a lesser status legally in the culture, that they had full inclusion in the kingdom of God. He highlights the inclusion in his gospel of sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the outcasts, those who are overlooked and marginalized in society, even the poor. You see, the gospel is not just for people who have it all together. The gospel is not just for people who seemed, you know, maybe they were voted most likely to be a church member, you know, in their yearbook in high school. No, the gospel is for everyone. The good news of salvation in Jesus is universally available. Luke aims to show us that. And if the gospel is universal, if the gospel is for everyone, then it means, following from that, that the gospel is also personal. If it's for everyone, that means it's also for you. It's for you. It's interesting, in the Greek language, this is a very, very formal introduction. This is like high classical Greek. It's not the the common Koine Greek that the rest of the New Testament is written in. And the very last word in this long sentence is the word that the ESV translates in verse 4 as certainty. Certainty. Your translation may render it assurance or confidence. That's the last word in this sentence, which means it has a great place of prominence and emphasis. All of this is building towards one thing. It's building towards the personal faith of Theophilus. Luke wants Theophilus to believe. He says the gospel is for everyone. It is universal, which means it's for you individually, and I want you to believe it. Luke believed that telling the story of Jesus was powerful and that it ought to produce faith and confidence in those who hear it. This desire for certainty and and for assurance shows us that Luke really writes with an evangelistic and a pastoral concern. He cared about this guy. He cared about this man. He wanted him to grow in his faith, not to doubt, not to waver, not to wonder if it was really true, and if it was true, if it really was for him. He wanted him to embrace it wholeheartedly. This shows us something about the message itself, that the story of Jesus, this gospel message, is meant to be received. It is meant to be trusted. It is meant to be believed in. And what Luke wants to do as he writes this gospel, not just for Theophilus, but for us, Luke intends to take away obstacles to your faith. He intends to communicate that, yes, this really did happen, and this is for you. This is for you. The good news of salvation through Jesus for everyone is trustworthy. It's historically valid, it's been sovereignly accomplished, and it's universally available. It invites belief and faith. So how do we apply these principles we've seen in the text this morning? I want to speak to two different groups of people in the room. Number one, some of you may not yet be believers in Jesus. Perhaps you've heard the stories, but you're not convinced it's true. Perhaps you've heard this message, you've heard the gospel before, but you're not convinced that it's for you. 
and that you need to believe in it and trust it. If I could just very simply appeal to you this morning, God's desire for you today is that you would believe. Believe in the testimony. Believe in the story of Jesus. Believe in it. Believe that the story of Jesus is true and that this is God's plan to bring salvation for sinners. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, no matter what your situation, this offer of salvation extends to you. You can believe and you can belong. Will you? Will you trust the story of Jesus? Will you look to Jesus Christ? You see, as Luke tells this story, he's going to spend so much of his gospel focusing not on you know, 33 years of Jesus' life, but on this very narrow slice of Jesus' life, really just the last few years of his ministry. And even within those last few years, most of his gospel is dedicated to Jesus traveling to Jerusalem where he will be crucified on a Roman cross. And then three days later where he will rise from the dead. That's the center point. That's what must be believed. That's what must be trusted. If you're a sinner today, it is only through the sacrificial death of Jesus that you can be granted forgiveness. If you want to belong to the kingdom of God, your sins must be dealt with. And there's nothing you can do to deal with those sins. There's nothing you you can do to fix your problem. It required the death of the Son of God to reconcile us to the Father, to give us freedom from our bondage, to to give us light and, and to help us see to make us spiritually alive. Because apart from Christ, apart from his work, we're spiritually dead. We're guilty and condemned. And we are outside of the kingdom of God. So if that describes you today, the very simple call is that you would believe. Believe the testimony. Believe the story about Jesus, that he really is the son of God, that he died and rose again for sin, and that through faith in Christ, you can have salvation. Believe. What about for those of you who do believe? How does this, how do the principles we found here that this gospel is trustworthy, what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, the application is actually very similar. Believe in the testimony. Believe that this is true. Believe that this is God's plan. Believe that this salvation comes to all who put their trust in Christ. Assurance in the trustworthiness of the gospel story It will fuel faithfulness for you as a believer. It appears that Theophilus did believe this story, but he needed more confidence. He needed more assurance. Why? Why? It's because he needed to be faithful for the long haul. The Christian life is long and sometimes difficult. There will be challenges. There will be opposition. There will be temptation. There will be adversity. You have to believe in this. And to be confident in it because that will fuel faithfulness for you as a Christian. The gospel's worth holding on to. It's worth giving up everything for. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. And it will change you. It changed fearful and selfish disciples into ministers of the word. And it can change us as well. So I'll ask you a question. Is the truth and the story of Jesus, is that what drives your life? If you recognize areas in which your life is really lived for yourself and it's not under the rule of Christ and it's not serving the purposes of Christ, read the Gospel of Luke and become convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be and he really did these things. 
and that this is our only hope of salvation. That will shape how you live. But secondly, I'll ask you a question. Do you share the evangelistic zeal of Luke to see other people share faith in Christ? I think we can follow Luke's example, that he went through a lot of labor and effort, yes, because the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write a book of the Bible for us, but also because he cared for this man, Theophilus. There is an evangelistic or or a pastoral zeal because he wants others to have faith in Christ. Luke is very mission-minded. He knows that God's plan is to bring many into the kingdom. So listen, Christian, as you grow in gospel certainty, as you grow in your assurance in salvation, as you grow in your confidence that this is true, every word, there's something else that needs to grow with that. And that's your desire to share that faith with others. Luke had that. And my hope is that we will grow in that as well. In conclusion, I want to just read from the very end of Luke's gospel as we wrap up this introduction to the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 24, I mentioned this story earlier where Jesus is walking with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 25, after Jesus hears why they're sad and recognizes that they don't really get it, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We'll skip down to verse 32. They, they end up in a village. They have dinner with Jesus. And then their eyes are open. They recognize it's him. And Jesus vanishes. And they said in verse 32, they said to each other, did, our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Did our hearts not burn within us? I love that statement. And I will tell you, church, that this is my prayer, that that would be our experience, that as we go through the gospel of Luke together, as we walk through these stories, as we observe the miracles, as we see the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that we would truly see who Jesus is and that as we believe in these truths that our hearts would burn, that there would be an increase of joy in our hearts, that there would be a growth in our faith, that we would have an increasing confidence in the truthfulness of this story, and that our love for others and our love for our Savior would overflow out of a heart that burns with faith and joy and love for Christ. Will you pray with me to that end? Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We recognize that every book, every chapter, every every word is given for us, so that we can be equipped and strengthened, so that we can be instructed and encouraged, so that we can understand and receive the life-giving truth of the gospel. Thank you for the gospel according to Luke. Thank you for the unique contributions that we discover here. Thank you for the way he confirms the historicity of those events that happened. Thank you for the emphasis that he places on this universal offer of salvation that that is for Israel, but also for the world. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, that, that you would bring us to a point like those two disciples, so that our hearts burn within us as we get it, as we see who Jesus is, and we become convinced of the truthfulness and the power and the beauty 
of the gospel story. Lord, for those who may not yet believe in Jesus, I pray that they would come to that point of faith where they would embrace the claims of Jesus Christ and put their trust in him. And I pray that for those of us who do know Christ, that we would grow in our certainty and our assurance, that we might be better servants of the word who can share with others the hope and the life and the joy that we have in Christ. Amen.